The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Can you turn with me to the second chapter of the Gospel according to Luke? We've already been reading in Luke chapter 1, and now we'll be in Luke chapter 2 as we continue to look at the narrative of Jesus' birth. So a few weeks ago, I watched a reimagined story, uh, or a reimagining, sorry, of the story of Santa Claus. Well, it's more that one of my kids was watching it, and I was doing the kind of parental over-the-shoulder thing, and then got sucked in a bit too much, more than I planned to while I was supposed to be working, uh, and enough so that I could actually follow the storyline. And then, of course, I got the obligatory, let me fill you in conversation. As parents of children my age know, you're going to get, you know, with a lot more detail than you really want, often. But that counts as watching it, doesn't it? But admittedly, the film was really nicely done. They took all the elements of the legendary story and gave them some new and sometimes quite humorous origins. But the thread running through the whole retelling was the fact that many of the things that came to be believed about Santa Claus were unintended or misunderstood or entirely fabricated. Yet in the story, they had a profound effect on the other characters. Beginning with the children, the whole town became a more civil, more considerate, kinder place as a result of what they came to believe about Santa Claus. So here's the question it got me thinking about. Does it matter much if what we believe about Jesus is true, if it makes everyone feel good and be a bit nicer to each other at this time of year? The story of the incarnation of God's Son that we remember and celebrate at this time each year is nothing short of fantastic. In fact, the central claim of the Incarnation, that as we read earlier in Luke chapter 1, through the, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, God became human and genuinely so without ceasing to be God, a baby in need of comfort and care, born of a virgin. Well, frankly speaking, how is that any more unbelievable than flying reindeer and a fat man who can fit down chimneys and knows whether you've been naughty or nice? And because of the year-after-year year repetition and all that has grown up around it, the school plays and the nativity scenes and the feasting and the Christmas trees and the gifts, of course, if we're not careful, the birth of Jesus can fade into the background. The details just get more and more fuzzy, and it takes on this kind of mythical feel, much like Santa. But isn't that okay? Does it matter much what actually happened? Isn't it enough if because of the story of Jesus' birth, we slow down a bit and appreciate the gift of each other and we make more time for family and we're a bit more thoughtful and we make sure we attend a church service? Well, we've been reading from the Gospel according to Luke this morning and Luke would say that no matter the seemingly beneficial effects of myth, the story of Jesus' birth is not a myth and the details matter. This morning we'll focus on the details of Jesus' birth recorded for us in Luke chapter 2. I can speak for Luke because he spoke clearly for himself on this matter. He tells us why he researched and wrote this book. Luke chapter 1 begins this way. 
Inasmuch as many have undertaken to comply, compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who, were, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke is talking to eyewitnesses and has followed these events closely for some time and has written an orderly account. And why has he put in all this work? So that his recipient, Theophilus, and so that you, by extension, may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty. Luke does not mean for us to read the account of Jesus' birth as a feel-good story. He wants us to be certain that these things took place as reported and to understand the significance of them. That's why Michael Kruger boldly claims what happened that night still stands as one of the most monumental events in human history. Well, with that in mind, let's give careful attention this morning to the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 21. This is God's holy word by which he announces good news to us and gives us his grace. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which, was called, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, 
the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your word, we need your help. We need you to make Jesus known to us. So we pray that by your spirit, uh, as I preach your word, you would open our eyes to see Jesus. We pray that we would come and behold him and adore him. In his name we pray. Amen. In this passage, Luke has recorded the circumstances around the birth of Christ. Noting details of government decrees and family lines that seem mundane until they are closely examined. But he also makes us the audience of a unique birth announcement that unveiled the significance of the otherwise unremarkable event. And tells us how the shepherds involved and others received the good news of the birth of Jesus. All of this has been recorded for us as a gift to us, meant to benefit us. So here's what's going on in this passage. In the birth of Jesus, God beckons us to behold his good gift of a great king who would bring salvation and peace. Let me say that for you again. In the birth of Jesus, God beckons us to behold his good gift of a great king who would bring salvation and peace. That beholding is what we've been singing about this morning. And now we want to do that as we dive into this passage. So for the next few minutes, we're going to respond to this holy invitation. To behold something is to give our attention to it. To stop and focus on it and take it in. And what we're beholding, or rather whom we're beholding, is God's long-awaited king through whom he would establish peace and bring salvation. So let's behold God's gift in this way, by holding it up and looking at it from three angles. The circumstances of Jesus' birth, the significance of Jesus' birth, and the reception of Jesus' birth. So let's examine the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 in Luke chapter 2. Luke begins by locating the story of the birth of Jesus in its historical place. So he refers to contemporary events and powerful people, events and people mentioned in other historical accounts from the time, events and people that shaped Jesus' story. Caesar Augustus was ruling all of what would have been considered the known world from his throne in Rome. The Roman Empire of the day stretched from modern-day Spain through France, Italy, Greece, and Turkey, and down through the Middle East uh, and Egypt, and then back across sections of North Africa. Augustus' reign was the golden age of the Roman Empire, a time of stability, peace, and the flourishing of culture. In a sense, and for some, this was as good as it had ever been. The registration spoken of here was a tax census because even golden ages need to be financed somehow. The whole nation of Israel had its collective neck under Rome's boot. They were a subjugated people, controlled by their enemies. God had promised their ancestor Abraham that kings would descend from him and that his descendants would be a blessing to the whole world. Where was the fulfillment of this promise? It's important for you to understand that the time into which Jesus was born was a dark and difficult time for the Jewish people, particularly for the poor. And Mary and Joseph were poor. They were from a backwater town in a disdained area of Israel. But Joseph was a distant relative of Israel's great king, a distant descendant of David. 
And so he had to return to Bethlehem, his family hometown, for the census. And he made the 90-mile journey with his wife Mary, who was very pregnant at the time. And there in Bethlehem, in very humble surroundings, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. And after the ordeal of delivery, she cleaned him up and wrapped him herself, as she would have been taught to wrap a newborn, and laid him in a feeding box for animals. There's a reality written between the lines of the circumstances of Jesus' birth that Luke records here. And this is it. So much is broken, yet everything is going according to plan. From the beginning, when Adam and Eve disobeyed and thereby damaged this good creation, God promised a rescuer would be born. And in time, he made it clear that his redemptive plan centered on one family line and one small town. Micah 5.2 recorded God's specific promise made hundreds of years before the night of Jesus' birth. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. We spent the last four weeks in the book of Ruth, seeing how God moved behind the scenes hundreds of years before that promise to rescue the royal line through, through challenging circumstances and humble people in that same town of Bethlehem. So much was broken, yet everything went according to plan. Now we see how God's hand was at work through Caesar's decree and all of these circumstances to bring his son into the world in exactly the way he planned. The peace of Augustus' reign would last only a few decades. But God was giving us a much better king. As the angel said to Mary, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. As Isaiah prophesied, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And even today, he extends the gift of peace with God to those who continue to live like God is at best a footnote in their lives. It's been many centuries since the birth of Jesus, and some things have not changed. Our lives are still shaped by the decrees and decisions of the powerful. We are a nation of people that has been scattered all over the world for economic and educational opportunities. Politics still dominates our lives and conversations. This week, just in random places, I've just met strangers who, for some reason, felt the need to engage me in conversation about how I felt about what's been going on in the U.S. And I'm thinking, ah, uh, okay, sure. Let's have a very stranger-level conversation about this, shall we? But it's easy to think that we are at the mercy of those people and those forces and to despair or to become anxious. But seeing how God was at work in these circumstances in Luke 2 should help us to understand something. He is always at work, even when we can't see him establishing his kingdom. The pieces here didn't simply fall into place. They were moved and intricately arranged by the unseen almighty hand. And he doesn't just involve himself in big strategic matters. He lovingly rules over every detail of our lives, even as he calls us to live every detail of our lives consciously for his glory. If you are in Christ, then God has included you in his grand plan. You are a part of the good story he is writing. If we are in Christ, we can look at our time, at our circumstances and lives and say, so much is broken, 
yet everything is going according to plan. Believing those twin truths will save you from the tyranny of living by today's news and still your heart when everything seems to be coming undone. Those were the circumstances that led up to the birth of Jesus. But we need to travel a little distance to a dark field outside Bethlehem to truly understand the significance of Jesus' birth. The birth of Jesus had taken place in Bethlehem with no fanfare whatsoever. If people had known who was being born, that would not have been the case. It would have been the same as it is today. Now, I have very close to zero interest in the royal family in England, yet I've been aware of every birth of each of William and Kate's children because of the international media frenzy that tends to accompany it. When Jesus was born, there was no frenzy in Bethlehem. But how heaven took notice. Heaven, in fact, put on a show complete with special effects and an ensemble. But the audience was a most unlikely and puzzling choice, a group of shepherds. Now, I want you to understand how shepherds were viewed in the society of the day. Shepherds were almost the lowest of the low. They were always ceremonially unclean because of their job, and they had a reputation for gathering not just their sheep, but also things that rightfully belonged to other people. So basically, they had the social standing of teeth in garbage men. No disrespect to the hardworking, honest garbage men who serve us. It's likely that the only reason that these shepherds were allowed to be so close to the town of Bethlehem is that they were rearing sheep that were being used for the sacrifices in nearby Jerusalem. So why did God handpick such an unimpressive audience for an earth-shattering heavenly announcement? It's because Jesus came to bring outcasts into his family. God is interested in outcasts, in those everyone else would despise and marginalize. Jesus came to take the world by its corners and to turn it on its head. So an angel suddenly appears with the, with, with the dazzling glory of the Lord, the physical manifestation of the presence of God himself, terrifying the poor shepherds, then comforting them. Because you know how that has, it has to go that way. You know? The angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy for all the people. And what was the substance of this good news? Today a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. And he was born for you. He's God's gift to you. Do you want to know who Jesus is? He's a Savior. He's Christ. And He's the Lord. And understanding and responding to that will change everything about your life. Savior speaks His role as a deliverer. For Jews, the most important event in their history, the formative event in the, 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 the history of the nation of Israel, was the Exodus, when God, through Moses, delivered His people from slavery in Egypt. And they were waiting for God to deliver them again from all their enemies. But they thought that their biggest problem was political oppression. We, in our day, don't often feel our need for a savior. We do feel the brokenness of the world, but often we misdiagnose the problem and therefore misidentify the solution. 
We think the problem is socialization or inequality or religion or biases. But most of us do not think that the problem is us. Most of us do not think that the problem is sin. And further, our culture tells us that something is wrong with us if we're looking for help outside of ourselves, which means that any self-respecting person will shun this Savior. Christ, or Messiah, speaks to the fact that Jesus was God's anointed one, the anticipated one, his chosen king, the rightful and righteous ruler of the whole earth. Lord means that he is the sovereign one. He is God himself. Think about it. If the angels call him Lord, then that means that he rules over them. Jesus is God's deliverer, sent to save us from the tyranny and consequences of sin. He's God's chosen king, sent to rule in righteousness and justice. And he is God himself, worthy of our worship and undying loyalty. We need to see Jesus the way heaven sees Jesus. You see, it would have been impossible for these shepherds, even if they had wandered into town and happened upon the place where Mary, Joseph, and the newborn were, to have understood the significance of this child. In every way, he would have appeared to be a regular newborn baby. What made all the difference was that they were given a heavenly perspective. The angels told them how heaven viewed this newborn. And this is true for everyone who interacts with Jesus. We cannot know who he is. We cannot understand his significance or respond appropriately to him unless we see him the way heaven sees him. We should not be surprised if when we think of Jesus, when we think of his birth, when we think of the cross, when we think of the church, all we really do is give a head nod so as not to offend the really religious people around us. That would make complete sense. What should amaze us is if we feel the wonder. If he takes our breath away, if we desire to know him more and to make time to read and hear of him again, if we want to talk about him and tell people what we've heard, because that means we've come and are coming to see him the way heaven sees him. That means that God has done something to us. Much like God, by his spirit, did a creational work in Mary's womb, he has done a creational work in our hearts to give us new life and new eyes so that we see who Jesus really is. Then we can know, as 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Over the past few days and weeks, many of us and many others have been praying that God would do precisely that in your heart. If you are here with us today and up to now, you have not truly seen who Jesus really is. If he's opening your eyes today, we'd love to talk to you afterwards. So we'd love to help you just to respond to that. So please don't hesitate to speak to any one of the pastors. So what do you do after your night with the sheep has been interrupted by blinding light and an angelic proclamation, which is then topped off with thousands upon thousands of angels rejoicing, giving glory to God, and proclaiming peace on earth to the people he favors? I figure you do like these shepherds did and say, let's go and see this for ourselves. So let's accompany them and examine the reception of Jesus' birth. Imagine the scene with me for a moment. 
full-grown men scrambling through fields in the pitch blackness with no thought about the sheep they were tending up to moments before, clambering into Bethlehem at night. And remember, of course, there are no electric lights, so probably the only light here is the fires that people might have been using to keep them warm. And, you know, they're, they're bumbling and stumbling through town. People are probably waking up because they're looking for this sign they had been given. A baby wrapped like all babies would be wrapped, but lying in a manger. Thankfully, Bethlehem was a small town. But these men shouldn't have been in town at this time in the first place. And they must have caused quite a stir before they found Joseph and Mary and the baby, just as the angel had told them. They shared what the Lord had made known to them with Mary and Joseph and others who gathered because of the commotion their arrival caused. And what a strange tale it must have been to hear. Wait, 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 wait. This baby is who? And who told you this? An angel? Who would believe a story like that? Yet, nobody could deny that these shepherds had arrived in town that night, having abandoned their flocks, at least temporarily, looking for exactly the child that they found. These onlookers were understandably amazed. For Mary, all of this must have been so reassuring, yet so much to take in. She herself had received an angelic visit and a message but had lived with the inevitable shame of being found pregnant before her wedding. Surely she was putting together what she had been told and what her cousin Elizabeth had said and probably what Joseph had been told with what the shepherds had now told her. Can you picture her holding her newborn baby, looking down at him and mouthing the words that the angel said to the shepherds? For unto you is born this day a savior, who is Christ the Lord, her baby, God's savior and king, the sovereign ruler of the universe. Mary treasured these things in her heart and meditated on them. Eight days later, when they circumcised their baby, Joseph and Mary gave him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. The name the angel told Mary to give him before he was conceived. The shepherds, for their part, returned to their post that night, but now they were praising God. The contagious joy of heaven had been caught by these simple folk. The reception of that first night sketches some basic contours of what it looks like to encounter Jesus. It's going to interrupt our regular life in some way. Truly meeting him is never business as usual. And meeting Jesus, hearing of him, understanding what we've heard and believing it leads to worship and wonderment and ponderment. Surprisingly, that is a real word. And to joy. That is the basic shape of beholding, of the beholding that we are called to here. In order to behold Jesus, we need to give our attention to that process, which means taking it off all the other things which dominate our time and our thoughts. And we need to recognize that seeing him clearly is a matter of revelation. God must make him known. So prayer is vital. And we need to think about what the Bible says about him, which is what the scriptures commend to us as meditation. Sometimes our relationship with Jesus and the gospel is shallow because our thoughts about Jesus and the gospel are shallow. We haven't thought much about him or haven't thought much about him in a long time. And when our thoughts about Jesus are shallow, our joy in Jesus will be shallow. 
And the joy I'm talking about is not simply exuberance. Exuberance can evaporate in the face of suffering. I'm talking about a rugged, durable, enduring joy that stands up even when life kicks you down. In this account, we have an illustration of the connection between theology and doxology, between knowing God and worshiping God. The shepherds to whom God made the good news of the Savior known were probably having a regular night talking about whatever shepherds talk about on a night when they're out watching their sheep. But now they had the praises of God on their lips. When you see more of God, you'll want to sing more about God. I'm zeroing in on singing not because it's the only way to worship, but this much is indisputable. In the Bible, those who know God sing of him. Men in our culture, we especially need to hear this because we can be bent in unhelpful ways because of our socialization. But we rob ourselves if we're not careful because joy expressed is joy multiplied. One of the gifts this season offers us is the opportunity to ponder these things, much like Mary did. Our word holiday comes from holy day, a day set aside for worship. So I'd like to encourage you over this Christmas season to do just that, to take some time, maybe on Christmas Day or Boxing Day, to gather as a family or with friends and to read the story of Jesus' birth. You can read here in Luke and continue on. You can read in Matthew. The wonderful thing about doing this with kids in particular is they often notice things that we have come to take for granted over time and ask you questions. You're like, what? Oh, I didn't think about that. What took place in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus was like a tremor that must be understood to be felt. The powerful and the poor played their parts as God orchestrated the circumstances, giving us his son at the time he chose, in the place he chose, and through the people he chose. And the significance of this seemingly regular birth was revealed by heaven to the marginalized and overlooked. And their reception of this glorious event illustrates for us how this good news, when we understand its magnificence and feel its magnitude, interrupts our lives and invades our hearts and dominates our conversations. As Jesus grew up, the fault lines followed underneath his feet and were felt more and more as he preached the good news of God's subversive kingdom that we must become like little children to receive where the lowliest servant is the greatest, and the first will be last, and the last will be first. He rejected the religious establishment and associated with the poor and prostitutes and traitors and outcasts. His path took him without fail to the cross, and then astoundingly to an empty tomb, events which literally shook the earth. But if we have been blessed through his birth and death and resurrection, if we are to continue to be blessed through them, they must continue to rock our world. They must continue to shake our lives because we so easily settle into patterns of building and setting our hopes on things that will not last and will eventually be reduced to rubble. For the present form of this world is passing away. We must continue to hear and to believe the good news because every day we hear other gospels, counterclaims that compete with him, peddling empty promises of peace and salvation through financial independence, position and influence, the preservation of our health, seemingly endless entertainment and leisure, and achieving our personal goals, whatever those may be. That's why we meet every week, because we need every week to be reminded of the good news of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
That's why as a church, we want to learn to encourage each other daily with the gospel. That's why we want to grow in regular Bible reading. Because as one author says, without the Bible, we soon lose the genuine gospel and the real Jesus and the true God. So today, God invites us to behold the good gift of his son once again. The king whose reign will never end. And to continue to meet him and see him in all his glory through Christian community and private devotions. So that together we will live with the gift of his peace and salvation. Will you fix your attention on him today and for the rest of your life? Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.